Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this program, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sport, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We get their take on the current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything from digital strategies to supply chain headaches, and of course, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. On today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Dingle, who is the Chief Creative Officer at With Reason, which he co-founded in 2012. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Joshua. And so to say, you know, th- thanks for having me on. And, you know, still quite humbled. And uh, thanks for that great intro and putting myself in reason and, you know, in the, in the category of people that the Leaders' Council uh, speaks to on this podcast. Not a problem at all. You know, it's all about us speaking to different people across different industries. And, um, you know, given the, let's dive straight in and given the, the, the sort of chaos and the business disruption of the last 18 months, um, how's everything been? Well, yeah, I think you, you described it as being chaotic, <laughs> hasn't it? Um, and I think, I think ultimately we're slightly in a, in a more privileged position, um, given our industry being in sort of the creative and the digital and the technology space that, you know, our just the nature of our work has afforded us the flexibility and the ability to be a bit more resilient during the, you know, the sort of the, the sudden lockdowns and the sudden dispersion of the workforce. So I think that I, I definitely have to acknowledge that. But I think the one thing, you know, other than sort of saying chaotic, it's been, it has been a real challenge. And I think for us, not so much operationally. I think, you know, we have a bit where our business model lends itself to being able to sort of work from where, wherever you are. But the real challenges and the, the sort of things that really came up for us with it were the cultural and the people challenges. You know, our business, our industry is definitely defined very much by the people within your business and the culture and that is, is widely known in the creative space is one of the key differentiators. So, you know, the, the I guess the, the shake-up that something like that has when you go from seeing each other every day and owning the environment in which you work and being able to sort of, you know, control and design things sort of losing that overnight is for us, you know, that, that real challenge that, that we have to look to, to overcome. And, you know, with, you know, experimenting around that, but I guess for us, that was a sort of the, the big shock and the big thing that we had to work through. Absolutely. You know, losing uh, in person, especially in, in the creative industries, the mm. where you work, you know, whilst it may be very much digital that you do, um, you know, not being able to have those sort of nonverbal cues with clients, yeah. not being able to have those, you know, sort of small chats with staff where you have those sort of eureka moments. I can imagine it really did make some of the work that little bit more difficult. But yeah. not only that, um, you know, as a business leader yourself, you're having to deal with with running your company. And, and making sure that you're being looked after whilst others are also sort of, I don't want to say losing their heads, but you know, losing yeah. their heads about their interruption and, and their own businesses as yeah. well. How did you yeah. deal with that? Huh. How did I deal with that? So I think that one of the um 
I think the one of the things that we found really so I, I, you know, on, on a personal note going through this is sort of actually just, just a learn to like lean on that um, that you know the, the experience you had when you go on an airport on an air, airplane when you used to go on an airplane sorry and you had to put your own mask on first before putting on the other <laughs> other people's masks and I think that that was one of the things I think it Throughout my, my whole generally, I've always been sort of that, you know, and actually our whole leadership at a reason has really defined itself as sort of looking after and supporting everyone else at sort of at the behest of potentially what we were going through and the stuff that we were going to work. But when you get put into this situation that we faced ourselves, particularly 18 months ago, when it all sort of started in March 2020, and then again in sort of November, what was the biggest learning for me was actually making sure that you had, as an individual that was leading an organization, you had the support and the headspace and the, the safety in your own, I guess, outlook before being in that shape, in a good shape there first, before diving headstrong into defining the strategy and working out how you're going to support the rest of your business, you know, culturally, mentally, and, you know, make it a more resilient place. Absolutely. You know, that is a really great point. Um, you know, leaders do continuously have to, to look after their own their own mental health, their own well-being, because without that, that does funnel down through through the staff in those those sort of touchy moments, the the stresses that are just passed yeah. on if you aren't putting yourself um, in that comfortable position. Did you find there are any strategies or did you reach out to anybody to help with that? Yeah, so I definitely, you know, this is a, you know, reach, reach out to that. We went, you know, we, at the start, we were like, okay, let's just bunker down and sort of move through this. And we, we relied really heavily on the, on the sort of the social capital we had built up over the, over the years of working together. And we had a team that had been together quite some time. But as that sort of social capital started to erode, we started to see the rough around the edges and the impact that the whole, you know, situation was having on everyone, which is where, you know, where usually we started to see how important our actions became and what we implemented and sort of being, I guess much more sort of take, going from a very more instinctual and gut approach, we found you know which we usually do, but actually we found ourselves starting from a position where we were not we you know our instincts were off, <laughs> and and, I got, you know, and our guts were our guts were off because we we're in a completely new situation. So how do we actually understand that? So we, we reached out to a number of things. We engaged um, with sort of resilience training. We engaged with a lot of stuff just to, as a leadership thing to really first understand where we were personally and emotionally so that we could then develop the strategies that we would then use across the rest of the business. Again, that's really important and a great sign of, mm. of quality leadership, being able to be um, you know, introspective, have a look at your own mm. failings and your own weaknesses and try and yeah. find the the moments mm. and the possibilities and the strategies to be able to, to yeah. shore that up, really. Um, and I'm sure that was appreciated, not only from yourself being able to learn, but also by by those around you. Do you then feel yeah. that your sort of leadership style has adapted and changed throughout this period? Is it something that, that has progressed? I think 100%. It definitely has progressed. It has adapted it has, and it has changed a lot there. Like I sort of mentioned before, and I think, I think a lot of people sort of found this and, you know, I maybe fall into that extrovert category where my energy and my, my, you know, everything that I do is sort of driven by the, the people around me and, and being able to read how they're feeling and how they're doing and then sort of having that, that taken away from you, you sort of a little bit more blindfolded and you become, well, actually, how do I, how do I become much more in tune with how people are feeling and where they are, but without being out in a room with them and talking with them, you know, by actually picking up what they're saying in emails, actually understanding the things that are, you know, 
noticing people not being in certain meetings or not engaging in the same way they used to and looking for much more subtle cues. So that was my whole, I guess, management style of leadership. So I had to develop those skills, which were there, but I, they were sort of masked by my ability just to walk and ask people and see how they're doing. Um, where that, that sort of, that, that channel was not, no longer there. You need to sort of change your centers to be much more focused on actually what are people not doing or where are people not being seen or where are they behaving slightly differently as the cue to, well, I need to actually proactively seek out that person and just have a conversation with them. Absolutely. And it's been so important, mm. um, you know, this isn't it, the, the pressures of this time period haven't just been around work. They've been around personal circumstances, the effects yeah. on families, just the, the overall sort of pressure of, of reading the news every day in, in many respects, mm-hmm. exactly. and seeing one thing after another. So you're right. It, it, it is very important to see those, uh, you know, small changes in people, which could yeah. actually be a sign, especially when removed yeah. of, a, of a bigger element. Um, when you're sort of looking forwards now, do you think that there's going to be a sort of permanent change in the way that you do things or as a company, as an individual, are you going to be sort of going onto the hybrid model or, or yeah. going back to everybody in the office and, uh, and that cool. creative industry that you, you love? Yeah, so I'll start, I'll start with the, the company side of things. Like, I think you know we we are definitely there's, there's, we have changed and completely uprooted to breach our model. We don't we, we've even opted for like we're not actually setting out a, a sort of strategy trying to adopt some principles where actually give like I said give opportunities to people and sort of see how individuals and teams and groups of people self organise around that mm-hmm. before we start putting anything sort of you know more formal or in place. So, you know, at the moment, it's more like this, you know, a very hybrid approach. We're definitely not engaged. We're definitely not forcing people to come into the office. We're actually, you know, if you don't want to come in at all, there is, you don't have to come in at all. And I guess from our perspective, it's, a, it's around understanding where people who have now gone on a huge big personal journey have reassessed what's important to them, um, where they feel comfortable. And that's what's important for us is like, you know, once people have re- reassessed and reorganized their priorities, where does you know, work fit into, into those priorities and how does, how, does, how does work best fit around those priorities. And I think that's the biggest shift rather than the, the sort of the focal point of the office or the creative studio as being the work is now actually one of the sort of many channels or environments around people's priorities and people's sort of, I guess, mental space or, you know, where they are mentally. Mm. And I think that's a real key takeaway from this conversation so far as well. The fact that you're allowing mm. people to sort of organize themselves in a way that makes them feel comfortable before putting those formal, um, you know, parameters mm-hmm. in place, you know, allowing yeah. people to to sort of naturally organize, which is, yeah. uh, you know, especially in, in sometimes in larger organizations, the human element is lost. So, you know, yeah. that really is is something there. A very, very impressive admit, way we're, of doing it. Yeah, I was, I mean, we are very lucky. We are of a size and we are of an industry where we are afforded that luxury to do that. Um, you know, so like you sort of said, as a larger organization to get, you know, you, you have to start taking a more macro view of things just to actually be across it. Um, and our industry itself, you know, we don't, you know, we, we the fact that we are technology led and, and digital lends, lends ourselves to being able to work remotely, actually embracing the, the technology upon which we work anyway, as a way of working. And do you think that, um, you know, from a company perspective now that everything is looking good um, for the next 12 months? Do you think that you're able to sort of, you know, thrive in the new possibilities, the new ways of working, the new dealing ways of dealing with clients and, and potentially having more, you know, sort of 
clients further afield as well. Yeah, so I think that's, that's a really interesting point. And I think that we, for the first time in, in 18 months, I think there is a real, I guess, positive outlook that has a longitude to it, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. where I think that's what we're really seeing now, whether it's tied into, you know, we're, we're in summer and everything's sort of reopening. But for the first time now, there actually is a really positive outlook in our industry in particular, as sort of, you know, a lot of companies and organizations say, well, we need to continue to operate. And they've come to terms, so, you know, as a service business, a lot of our clients have come to terms with the way that they need to operate moving forward. It's taken them 18 months, two years to get to that. We've actually been really integral in part of that journey, but now they're settled on that way of working or, or how they're going to operate their operating model moving forward. There's a much more in those businesses or our clients, there's a much more confidence in what they're going to be doing over the next two or three years, which in turn leads to our business confidence. Great call. Cool. We are their partners on achieving that sort of that transformation, that digital transformation or sort of, you know, change in sort of service model or, or how they serve their customers. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that's an interesting point there as well. You say it has taken some, you know, 12 months, 18 months to get to the point. But uh, mm. just imagine how much uh, slower it would have been without these radical transformations <laughs> to be able to Indeed. get that mindset going as well. Uh, 100%, 100%, yeah. Um, so... It's yeah. It seems like it's just been a, a very interesting time and a very interesting journey, and, and one you know yeah. both from a, a company perspective and and from a personal one yeah. as well. And you know I these think, things yeah. aren't going to to sort of go away, and and hopefully it really yeah. is embedded in in the company a bit more of a yeah. you know an adaptable culture as well. I think yeah. I would say there's two things. I think you know from a, from a company perspective, I think everyone we feel a lot more comfortable. We now have to know that we have a resilient operating model. Um, that, you know, we can't guarantee there's not going to be lockdowns in the future, but our team and our business is much more comfortable with that happening because we know how, you know, we prove we can operate, we can be much more flexible in the way that we operate, which is, you know, built resilience into our operating, which I think ladders up to the sort of the, the more important resilience, which is the sort of resilience of people, um, which is fundamentally what, what, what drives our business. I think on a personal level, for me as a development thing, I think one of the biggest changes I've had is being able to be much more sort of, I guess, and like I sort of said, when you start, you know, as I shifted from just being able to walk in and talk to people to actually being much more interested, not introspective, but reflective on things and observing that, it's made me much more reflective and observant on where I am personally and how that impacts how I need to engage and relate to people. So I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways is, you know, accepting or really learning about mental health through my own journey and my own mental health challenges throughout this this 18 months, I think people would be naive to think that nobody had any mental health issues throughout the last 18 months. And once having been through that has made me much more sort of, given me much more talk, much more sort of scope and understanding to engage with the people that, that, that work for us That's, on any level. That is an incredibly, you know, sort of selfless point there as well, that you are mm-hmm. being able to reflect on on, on your own you know, challenges and, yeah. and, and being able to identify those and you know i think that's a, a fantastic way to sort of finish this interview as well you know yeah. we're coming to the point here where where things are moving forwards and there's that positivity but also as you say and you, you've mentioned throughout learning those lessons so i'd really like yeah. to, to thank you for for coming on today and you know it'd be really interesting to have you back on in a you know few months six months time to see yeah. what the next stage is as well you know when things have reopened or got through the winter and to see yeah. really truly that next part of the the, um, the business journey yeah no thank you josh I, I you know i'd love to come back this is a great conversation and a great podcast so thank you for involving me not a problem at all thank you for coming goodbye thanks josh 
And next up on the show, we will be hearing from Leaders' Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett. He will be giving his take on the political and economic fallout of the last 18 months and how the UK is going can look ahead. Uh, he will be interviewed by Matthew O'Neill. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a 
service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, 
have a very different interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I 
wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack 
scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something 
over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, 
because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him, which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, Uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice 
sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.